0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at aaronv.com, A-A-R-O-N-V dot making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida, and by rosaryarmy.com. Have more peace. Visit rosaryarmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more. Make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And bye! Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. You're listening to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. I'm Dom Bethanelli, and I'm joined today by Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, this is an episode that we recorded to thank our patrons at Patreon.com/slash StarQuest for their generosity in making this and all our shows at StarQuest possible. We gave them early exclusive access, but now we're sharing it with you to show you one of the benefits of being a patron. So please enjoy this show. Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. We're always looking for ways to thank you for your generosity in making all the shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We recently reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got a lot of great responses. And so that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, I think we should probably just get right into those questions now. Sure thing. Our first question comes from Christopher Urasco, who asks, will faster than light travel ever happen? Also, I'd love to hear about Jimmy's experience as a private investigator.
1: Well, I can say more about the latter than the former. It's possible that we will at one point have faster than light travel. You often hear that nothing can go faster than light, but really, you can't accelerate anything that has mass to be faster than light. If there is a way to just jump past the light speed barrier, then nothing in the laws of physics prevents stuff from moving faster than life. This is a a point that is made by the German theoretical physicist Sabina Hassenfelder, and we'll have a video from her on Warp Drive where she talks about this. Also, the physicist Michio Kaku in his book, The Physics of the Impossible, has several different ways of how faster than light travel could be possible. And one of the most promising ways that has been thought of was actually inspired by Star Trek. A number of decades ago, there was a Mexican physicist named Alcubierre who was watching Star Trek. And, you know, they talk about warp drive all the time on Star Trek. And that's just a name they made up. It didn't originally have any significance. It just sounds cool. But he started thinking, how would a warp drive work? And he came up with what's known today as the Alcubierre warp drive. The way it works is by taking the space in front of a spaceship and compressing it while simultaneously taking the space behind the ship and expanding it. So it does warp space and the effect of shrinking the distance between you and Alpha Centauri while simultaneously expanding the difference between the distance between you and the solar system has the effect of propelling you faster than light, even though the little patch of space you're in is not moving at all. And so it is thought that this could actually work if we can find the right kind of energy to do it with because it depends on something called negative energy that we don't yet have. And that's one of the issues with all of the faster than light things we've got these days. They all tend to depend either on an exotic form of matter we haven't discovered or an exotic form of energy we haven't discovered. But we'll have links to both Dr. Kaku's book, The Physics of the Impossible and Dr. Hassenfelder's video on Warp Drive. About my experience as a private investigator. So, I guess my title actually was private private detective. What happened was one summer I was in grad school, and I needed a summer job because you know there weren't teaching assignments to make money with during the summer. And this happened to be the summer that my wife died, so she was sick during part of this. But basically, I got a summer job working as a private detective for a local firm, and my principal assignment was to look for shoplifters. They would send us in in teams, typically two people on a team, sometimes three, but typically you and a partner were working together and we would basically pretend to shop for seven hours. <laughs> and so we're we're pushing, you know, shopping carts and we're pretending to read the labels on packages of food and we're putting them in the cart and taking them out of the cart. And all the time we're looking for shoplifters. And we would indeed find them. And so I have arrested people. And it is an interesting experience. You never know when you're about to bust somebody, are they armed or not? Mm. You know, they could have a knife. They could have a gun. They've definitely got fists. And so you can be walking into a fight. And I was in some, you know, and it's interesting When that happens, now you're working with a partner and you always alert your partner before you do the bust because you're likely to need backup. And so there were people that would resist. And I can remember I was working one day with a partner and she like was grabbing the guy's shirt and trying to hold on to him long enough for me to tackle him and uh, you know we were we were tag teaming it but wow. you know we got we got the guy subdued and we arrested him using citizen's power of arrest and the experience made clear to me why all detectives smoke <laughs> because after you've busted somebody you need to take uh, some uh, you know a number of minutes to just unwind and do something with yourself as the adrenaline level goes down. So right. I would have my pipe with me and I would smoke my pipe and the other detectives were smoking their cigarettes. But it was very interesting. One aspect of the job I was considered particularly good at was writing the reports mm, um, because surprising. I was in, you know, I was in <laughs> grad school. So, you know, I had a, a lot of experience writing papers. And so the reports were pretty easy to do. You just describe what you saw. And what happened, one thing you never do is refer to the person you arrested as a suspect. He's always the subject in the in in the report. One of the most creative subjects we encountered was a gentleman who came into the store in the middle of the summer wearing this enormous trench coat, and what he had done was he'd altered the trench coat he'd basically knocked the pockets the interior bottoms of the pockets out and as a result he could drop things in the pocket of the trench coat and fill up the entire bottom of the trench coat he wasn't limited to what he had what he could have contained in the pockets and when we arrested him he was indignant. He didn't deny what he had done, but he was very superior in his attitude and explained that he was doing this because he's writing a book. And and this was research for his book, apparently. And so we figured that the experience of going to court and being fined or jailed would also give him some additional experience to write about in his book.
0: <laughs> did you ever do that thing where you're halfway down the aisle from the, the subject and you like they do on TV and yell, hey, you stop. So they give them like plenty of room to run away. <laughs> yeah, and we never did that. Uh, the,
1: actually, at the agency I worked for, the rule was even though in Arkansas, you could arrest on concealment, Uh as soon as the person, you know, puts the item surreptitiously somewhere. Our policy was do not arrest until they are leaving the store after they've cleared checkout, making it abundantly clear they did not intend to pay for this thing. Another interesting subject that we had was himself a, well, so I reported to work with my partner at one store. And as soon as we got there in the morning. The store employees came up to us and said, we need you to bust this guy. We have these Brinks armed guards coming in to pick up the money every day, you know, and put it in their strong arm, you know, in their secure truck and take it to the bank for us. And one of them is constantly shoplifting. And they had a kind of bin I, I think it was for bagels. It was like a self-serve bin. You know, you get the plastic bag, you put however many bagels you want in it and then yep. you pay for them. Well, every time he would go to, he would walk in the front of the store, he would go to the back and on the way he would snag himself a bagel. And this guy is a paid guard and he is armed and his job is to shepherd money from one place to another safely without taking any of it. But he was taking a bagel every day, and the store didn't approve of that and so we had to arrest the definitely armed security guard <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, another time i I was arresting a guy who was uh, a, who revealed in the course of the arrest that he was an ex felon who was just out of prison, which meant that if he went back, it would be much worse for him. Right. And in that case, we were in the parking lot and we weren't physically, you know, close to each other at this point. Uh-huh. And he very well may have had a weapon. And my partner, who is senior to me, recommended this time we don't risk it because we were not armed.
0: Right. Wow. Amazing. Uh could, could be a book.
1: Yeah, a short one. (laughs)
0: All right. Tim Semler asks, why do we experience emotional crying? I'd be interested in a whole episode on the mystery of emotional crying. I'm asking about the entire experience of crying that's more than simply tears. Why do we cry when we experience some emotions? Why does it bring relief? And how does it help us process emotions? How
1: does it affect us physically and spiritually? So crying is a physiological response to stress in humans some form of stress either it could be physical stress you know pain it could be emotional stress like sadness or joy and so it's it's a it's a response to being in some kind of stress and it releases that stress on the biological level How it does that, a part of how it releases the stress is by causing our brains to release certain endorphins. These are chemicals that different parts of our brain use to communicate with each other. And there are endorphins and and hormones that make us feel better. So part of the response is it causes the release of these things that make us feel better. And that's why we end up feeling better. When we cry because we're we're getting rid of this stress and we're releasing these additional chemicals that comfort and soothe us psychologically and sociologically, it also performs other functions because since the human family grew up together, it's recognized if somebody is crying, that person is in some kind of stress. And so it's not only something that helps us individually, it also signals other members of the community that we're in some kind of distress and we need help and there may be danger that needs to be taken seriously and this person needs to be comforted. And so it's also a form of social signaling whereby we subconsciously reach because we're not aware typically that we're doing this, but we're reaching out to other people to try to get comfort and get our needs met and things like that. Now. Speaking of the summer, my wife died. My sister had just gotten a dog. And this dog, which I think I've mentioned on the show before, uh, was 7-8th Siberian Husky and one Wolf. And the dog's name, because my sister loves giving things creative names, you know, most people give their dog one name. My sister gave hers three. So the dog's name was Locke Anna Rudaba. And would just known as Locke for short. And Locke was the friendliest, most extroverted, exuberant dog ever. She would just, uh, people come over, she would explode with joy. It's time to lick everybody in the face. And specifically on the mouth. Even when she was just a small puppy, she she would love going outside for a walk. And you know she had to be kept on a leash because Siberian Huskies are so energetic. It is even as a puppy. It was clear this is a pack animal. She was born to drag things in the snow. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't have snow in Arkansas, not most of the time. But I I remember my wife, who was not that not that tall, taking Locke out for a nice drag around the yard because Locke would just drag her on that leash. Then after my wife died, my sister moved in with me for about a year just so I wouldn't be alone in the house that, that Renee and I owned and just, you know, have nobody there while I was in this intense grieving phase. So, of course, I did a lot of crying after Renee died, and I can still tear up occasionally when I think about it, but I really liked crying, not just because it was releasing the endorphins that made me feel better as I was grieving, but also because on a psychological level, it was a tangible illustration of how much I loved Renee. Hmm. And it was, it was very, I mean, I knew my love for her was real, but having this tangible demonstration of that fact was also comforting. Hmm. And so, you know, I'd cry quite a bit, typically by myself. One day, my sister was, oh, now Locke, I should say, you know, like I said, she loves licking you in the face. And I can remember times when I would be driving over to my parents' house and I would have Locke in the car with me. And of course, she would want to sit in the shotgun, you know, Mm -hmm. next to me. And in the 20 minute drive to my parents' house, we would have 21 sessions of let's lick Jimmy on the mouth (laughs) as I'm driving. (laughs) Well, one day I was at home alone. My sister was not there, but Locke was. And I was sitting in the living room and I was crying. And Locke came over and started licking me in the face. And she sensed because dogs have lived with humans for, you know, 10,000 years. They've adapted to us. They've learned to read us. And so she recognized I was in distress and Locke was trying to comfort me. And I really appreciated that. I also did not stop crying. And at a certain point, Locke realizes he's in distress. This is not helping. There may be something really, really wrong here. And at that point, she wanted to go out into the backyard. (laughs) So, so I let her because she was thinking there's some danger here and this is not helping. Oh, wow. And, and I just kind of marvel at that because Locke, you know, being a very smart dog was able to sense that there's distress and she wanted to do what she could, but she couldn't comprehend why I was crying. She Mm. didn't understand death and grief that humans have. And so I had no way of helping her conceptualize there really is no danger here. And so I just find that a fascinating example of animal cognition where she's kind of caught in the middle. She recognizes part of what's going on, but also part of what's going on is just beyond her comprehension. And after my wife died, I found that some things had changed about when I cried there are certain scenes in movies and TV shows that can cause me to cry. And it's not the ones you might think. I mean, it's not necessarily the super sad moments or anything. What specifically gets to me or has ever since Renee died was moments that symbolically represent death and resurrection. So, for example, Toy Story, the original Toy Story, came out shortly after Renee died. And at the end of the movie, Woody, the cowboy, and Buzz Lightyear are desperately struggling to get on the family moving van so they won't be left behind forever. And there's a moment where Buzz is trying to help Woody up onto the moving van But he can't because there's a dog pulling Woody off and they're holding Buzz and Woody are holding on to each other, but the dog is winning and Woody realizes he's going to pull Buzz Lightyear with him if he doesn't let go. And so he says, take care of Andy for me. And he lets go. And that is, to me, that would, you know, resonate with my final farewell to my wife. And on a symbolic level, I would read this as like, this is a death. And this is self-sacrifice because Woody's doing it on his own initiative. And he's he's um, wishing good on Andy, who he is going to be separated from now forever in his mind. And then as the plot progresses during the intense climax of the movie, they do this again, where you have Buzz and Woody on a remote-controlled car, and they're trying to catch up with the van again, and they're almost, they're, they're almost to it, and the Slinky Dog, played by Jim Varney, is stretched out and holding on to Buzz Lightyear, but the van is accelerating, and the, the remote-controlled car's batteries are dying, and Slink is getting stretched further and further and further, and at some point, he says, I'm not going to be able to hold on anymore, and then he can't, and Buzz Lightyear and Woody are left behind again. And we have another symbolic death. And then Slink Dog is laying in the truck going, I should have held on longer. I should have held on longer, which also directly speaks to the emotions of someone who's lost another person. And, you know, there's something I should have done to to help the situation. And then... Buzz and Woody are able to light the rocket that is strapped to Buzz Lightyear's back. And they come, they rocket off the ground, they're rocketing towards the truck, they're sailing through the sky, and they have a glorious reunion with Andy and his family. And that's a symbolic resurrection. And so ever since Renee died, I have... Had an intense emotional reaction. In fact, last night when I was prepping this episode in my head, I did tear up about this rather, rather significantly, to put it mildly. But I, it, it, this will, this kind of situation is so beautiful to me in its sadness and its joy that. I have that I will it'll, it'll, it'll cause me to cry. And it's a beautiful to me reminder of the promise of the resurrection and how we will eventually be reunited with all of the loved ones that we have that we've lost in life. Excellent. So. So that's a little how I how crying has helped me process emotions. We also will have links to a couple of stories about the science behind crying that covers some of the same points I have already mentioned.
0: All right. Justin Schwartzbeck asks, I know you've said that you like to avoid hot button topics, but I know you mentioned global warming before on the show. So I guess it's fair game. Jimmy's expressed skepticism of global warming in the past. I wonder if he could elaborate on his view and give examples of scientific information that counter the claims of climate activists and explain how these claims are trustworthy. For myself, I don't know what to believe
1: about it. So I'm still researching the subject of global warming, and I'm not in a position, I am in a position to say I'm, I'm skeptical, certainly of the most extreme claims, which, you know, climate activists keep making predictions that keep not coming true. And that suggests, you know, they'll say things like snowfalls are a thing of the past, and we've got five years to fix this, or, you know, X is going to happen. And then five years go by, and X does not happen. And there's a track record of... Mistaken climate predictions I'm not at a point to do a detailed argument here, and I'm still in the process of researching and forming my opinions, which I always am. so I'll have to wait till a future episode on this to give you you know the full treatment, but to give you a taste of different perspectives on the question we'll have some links. One of them is to an article about how this issue has become politicized. And so you have people from different perspectives spinning it, making it sound harsher or being more dismissive, not simply because of the science, but because of the team they're on politically. We'll also have a video from John Stossel, who is a reporter that I have a lot of respect for because he challenges multiple viewpoints. So he talks to some climate people on this subject. We'll have a link to the website Real Climate Science which is a skeptical site. Also, we'll have a video analyzing the famous hockey stick graph that came out in the 1990s. And it's the development of the hockey stick graph really has some shady stuff connected with it, in, including the famous hide the decline climate gate scandal, because what the hockey stick graph is, is a composite. It shows relatively stable temperatures over a long period of time, and then it suddenly skyrockets in, in very recent years. Well, that graph is a composite of different lines of data from different studies, and the studies do not all agree some of the studies show a recent spike, and other, another one shows a recent decline. And so when they stitched the data together, they simply omitted the decline part and used some rather graphical trickery and data manipulation to hide the decline. And we even had emails that got link, leaked uh, talking about how we're going to hide the decline to keep the narrative from being muddied by this data that points in the other direction. On the other hand, so those are some, some you know, kind of middling to skeptical perspectives, but we'll also have an article that offers a pro-global warming uh, summary. So you can read more than one perspective.
0: Excellent. Joel Lawell writes, uh, after doing the mystery of weight loss, has Jimmy looked into exploring other health phenomena? I think a good one would be what causes muscular hypertrophy? This is a highly debated topic in the fitness world.
1: Yeah, so muscular hypertrophy is basically increasing the size of your muscles. And that can be done more than one way. One way is by getting them to absorb more water. And that'll increase their size without increasing the number of muscle fibers. And my understanding is like the nutritional supplement creatinine can help with that. On the other hand, there is a, a lot of people might say, well, I don't care how big they are. I'm not a bodybuilder. I, I want more muscle mass that's not water. And the way to do that in principle is, ca- is put your muscles under stress. And that stress will cause them to stretch to the point that they break a little bit. You'll get little fissures in your muscles, which your body then has to heal. And when they heal, they get built back bigger. And so this is the origin of the famous phrase, no pain, no gain, because you need to get them to that stress point where they start to tear a little bit in order. And that causes some, some soreness in the muscles but that's necessary to get them to actually grow in size. So no pain, no gain in muscle mass, according to that theory. Interestingly, I read a book a number of years ago. It was called Slow Burn, and I guess we'll see. I I didn't get a link for it before we recorded this, but we'll see if we can get a link for it. Basically, the premise of Slow Burn is that you don't need to do lots and lots of exercise. What you really need to do is just get your muscles to that stress point and, and you don't have to do that with large, violent movements. In fact, you really, from this perspective, don't want large, violent movements. Because let's say you've got some weights and you're jerking them up and down real fast. Well, you're going to get inertia going. And that inertia is going to stress your muscles less. Because as you're bringing the weights down, if you're just doing it really fast, you're letting gravity do the work for you. What you want to do instead is do these exercises as slowly as possible. So you slowly raise them so there's no inertia, and then you slowly bring them back down so you're fighting gravity. And that gets your muscles to the stress point quicker. And so we'll see if we can get a link for slow burn, if it's still in print. I I don't know a lot about bodybuilding. I mean, I know the basic theory that I just laid out. But what I know more about is nutritional supplements, because I've done a good bit of study and have actually quite a bit of personal experience with different nutritional supplements and what does and does not work for various things. And I, I have it on the list of future possible topics to do an episode on that.
0: All right. Adam Spacht uh, writes, I've heard that the Eye of Sahara, aka the, the Richat structure, has been described by some as meeting Plato's description of Atlantis. What are your thoughts on this, Atlantis in general, and the Eye of Sahara itself?
1: So we'll definitely be doing a an episode on Atlantis in the future, and we'll I'm sure we'll talk about the Eye of Sahara or the Reshat structure in that episode. Basically what the Reshat structure is, it's in uh, I want to say Mauritania in Africa, and the sta- it's a it's a geological formation, and the current understanding of it is it was once a dome, and it had different there were different layers of sedimentary and igneous rock in the dome, but then the top of the dome has now been weathered away, and it's something like forty miles across or something like that. It's a really big structure. But because it was this layered dome with the top now worn away from the air, it looks like a set of concentric circles going in. And that does kind of fit Plato's description of Atlantis. The problems are that this is nowhere near where Plato said Atlantis was. It's not in the Atlantic Ocean, beyond the Pillars of Hercules. That's the Strait of Gibraltar for in modern terms. It also is not a sunken island. It's on a continent and that's above the waters. And it also does not reflect what Plato said about the concentric circle structure of the city of Atlantis. It wasn't that the ground had concentric circle rock formations. It's that the buildings we're in concentric circles. So it really doesn't fit Atlantis, but we will be talking about Atlantis and the reshot structure in the future.
0: Ann Smith asks When we, with God's mercy, live on the new earth after the resurrection of the body, will time exist? It's hard to imagine a forest without growth, spring, summer, and fall. We will
1: definitely have time. Time is a characteristic of all created beings. God does not experience time because he's not created, but all humans, angels, aliens, whatever else there is, does experience time in one form or another. Not necessarily the simple one-dimensional time that we experience here on earth in ordinary life, but some kind of time. And so consequently, we do not leave time when we die, and we will not leave time when we're living in the eternal order. We'll have, now whether there is going to be spring, summer, fall, and winter, that's a different question. That's driven by the ax those seasons are driven by the axial tilt of the earth. The earth has an unusually large degree of tilt for its axis. It's like twenty-three degrees off the perpendicular to the plane of the solar system. And so that causes disproportionately more light to hit the earth, either the northern or the southern hemisphere, depending on the time of year. And because the light's hitting at a more direct angle, it heats up more or fails to heat up more, causing summer and winter. And who knows what the axial tilt of the new earth will be. It could be the same. It could be something different. Uh, I wonder if it'll be wibbly wobbly. That's the question. (laughs) <laughs> well, you really don't want planets that have a, that have a lot of yaw. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That would be bad. Thomas Salerno uh, asks, hi, Jimmy, I'm interested if there's
0: any concrete evidence that the alleged Nazi anti-gravity zero point device called the Glock or the bell ever existed, or is it just a legend based on hearsay?
1: So I studied DeGlocka, and my impression is that it is a hoax. We don't seem to have good evidence for this. The claims that are made about it are not very credible. I mean, if they really had some, some technology that allowed you to resist gravity or extract usable energy from, you know, zero point energy, why didn't they win the war? <laughs> um, right. It, so this is, is not really compatible with the technology of the time. And we, all we have are really rumors. We don't have like drawings from Nazi archives or things like that that would describe the construction of such a thing. But we will have an article where you can read more about it. And also a link to another article on other Nazi UFO rumors. Now, even though a lot of these, and we'll talk about them in future episodes, but even though a lot of these are not really credible, That's not to say there's nothing here, because the Nazis did have some advanced aviation people working for them, most famously, a pair of brothers known as the Horton Brothers. And the Horton Brothers produced some revolutionary designs, including including designs for flying wings that may be the inspiration for some UFO accounts. And so we'll be talking about all of that, including the Horton brothers in the future. And we'll also have a link to the Horton brothers and information about their flying wing designs. James,
0: I'm going to say either Hudon or Hudden. Sorry, James. Following up on episode 137, Communication with the Dead, can you expound on the difference or similarities between the type of communication with the dead that's forbidden by the church and the type of communication with the dead that occurs in prayer to the saints. And beyond this, what about communication with the dead during private revelations, like the revelations of the promises of the rosary?
1: So the basic principle is, based on scripture, is we're not allowed to summon the dead for purposes of getting information out of them. If God wants a saint to appear to you, That doesn't break that prohibition because the initiative is coming from God to allow a saint or another departed soul to manifest to you. You're not the one initiating the communication. Similarly, based on biblical principles, we're not forbidden to ask the saints to intercede for us the idea is you 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 know pray to someone and ask them to pray to god for you and that we we know uh, from scripture both old testament and new testament that those in heaven are praying on our behalf and the book of revelation even depicts them as taking our prayer requests and presenting them to god uh, that's true both of human saints and angelic saints in the book of revelation they're both shown presenting our petitions to God. And that's one of the functions of your guardian angel is to intercede for you. That's why Jesus says that the angels of the little children never fail to see the face of my father in heaven. They always have access to God to intercede on behalf of their charges. So we're allowed to ask the dead to pray for us and to pray for specific things, but we're not allowed to summon them to get information out of them. Now, An interesting case is what happens when people pray to St. Anthony as kind of the patron saint of the land of the lost. You know, someone's lost an object, and for who knows why, it is frequently St. Anthony that people will pray to and ask for assistance in finding whatever it is that's been lost. So the way that would work, at least according to Catholic teaching is you ask St. Anthony to intercede with God. And in one way or another, we leave that to God, but in one way or another, he gets the information back to you about where the lost object is. He helps you find it. Okay, fine. In this case, you are asking the dead for something and you specifically for information, but the information is only sent back by God's providence frequently in guiding you to the place where the thing was without you even consciously realizing you're being guided. And so you do have communication with a departed soul that results in information coming back. But this is all under God's providence. God is the one the prayer is ultimately directed to. St. Anthony is just your prayer partner. And you are not summoning St. Anthony to ask him directly, (laughs) where is the thing? Right. So... It looks similar from one perspective, but really the principles are different. In terms of information like the 15 promises of the rosary, so we have a previous episode on evaluating private revelations, and and God, as we said, can have a saint appear to you. You could even, I don't see a a problem with this, you could even pray to God to receive an apparition, although don't bet on it because (laughs) apparitions are rare. So don't get disappointed if if you do pray for an apparition and it doesn't happen. But as long as it's God who's who's authorizing the communication and sending the saint to you, it's fine. You're not summoning the saint. In terms of the alleged promises of the rosary, these are something that were first written about by a Dominican in the 1500s named Alan de Rupi, And he claimed that St. Dominic, the founder of the Dominican Order, had a vision of Mary in which she revealed 15 promises for people who say the rosary. Alan de claims were taken seriously for about two centuries. And then someone noticed, hey, Alan de was writing 400 years after the time of St. Dominic. Let's check all of the records the Dominican order has prior to Alan de and see if anybody mentions these promises. And the answer was no. So it appears, however, Alan de got these, whether it was by, you know, someone told him this story or what, there actually is no record of this revelation stemming from the time of St. Dominic. And modern scholars have concluded that it's not actually accurate, that we don't have any serious evidence that this really happened. If if there were these, if St. Dominic had this dramatic vision with these dramatic promises, we would have an earlier record than one written 400 years later.
0: Right. And we'll have a link to an article on the 15 Promises of the Rosary. All right. Matthew Ross says, I have a few questions. Do you believe that children have a greater ability to sense the spiritual realm than adults? I ask because kids often have a sense of wonder to them, but also because many of my friends share stories wherein kids mention talking with or seeing departed loved ones, either in reality or in dreams why might adults lose this ability? And how as a parent can we teach our kids about the spiritual without being scary? And then he has a second question, but uh, maybe we should answer that one first.
1: Okay, so children's minds do work differently than adults' minds, and it has been speculated that consequently they are or maybe more natively open to supernatural and or psychic phenomena than adults are. I'll have a quote about that in a minute, but I wouldn't There's reason for caution here, because in addition to having potentially greater openness to the supernatural or the paranormal, children also have vivid imaginations, and they can imagine things that are just not, especially when they're small, that do not correspond to reality, and so it's kind of a mixed bag. And you don't want to assume just because a child tells you, oh, I dreamed about this person, that they were really in contact with the person. I can talk from personal experience on that because, you know, since I live alone, I and especially in this last year where, you know, we've had the covid lockdowns, I haven't been around a lot of other people. I know exactly who tends to show up in my dreams the most. It's my it's my family that I grew up with. So my mom, my dad, my brother, my sister and Renee. Those are the people that those are the five people that show up all the times in my dream. But three of them are no longer living. My mother, my father and Renee are not living. And so I uh, I I know I'm not in regular contact with them in my dreams. These are scenarios about ordinary life and somehow mom and dad and Renee are still alive again. But we're doing things that are pretty mundane, and we're dealing with problems that are pretty mundane. And occasionally they're a little weird when I wake up and think about it, but I wake up and think about it, and it's like, oh, yeah, they're not alive anymore. And so our imagination naturally uses people that we interact with. And because those are the people that have been the most important to me in life, those are the ones that show up in my dreams. So if a child is dreaming about, let's say, a dead grandparent, I wouldn't automatically take that as a sign of supernatural communication with the grandparent unless it's something that signals that like if i were dreaming and i one of one of my departed loved ones said i have a message from god for you well i would i would take note of that and i would consider whether that might be a supernatural contact but if it's oh yeah okay i'm back in college and we're living at home and you know the the septic tank is broken and we've got to get it fixed and stuff okay that's not a supernatural communication That would be a very weird one. (laughs) Yeah. Now, in terms of speculation about children being more open to this kind of thing, if you read the document, The Message of Fatima, that came out from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith back in the year 2000, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger has a theological meditation on the nature of private revelations. And in the course of that uh, discussion, he's talking about different. Types of revelations that are possible. One of them he refers to as interior vision. And he says interior vision does not mean fantasy, which would be no more than an expression of the subjective imagination. It means rather that the soul is touched by something real, even if beyond the senses. It is rendered capable of seeing that which is beyond the senses, that which cannot be seen, seeing by means of the interior senses. It involves true objects which touch the soul, even if these objects do not belong to our habitual sensory world. This is why there is a need for an interior vigilance of the heart, which is usually precluded by the intense pressure of external reality and of the images and thoughts which fill the soul. The person is led beyond pure exteriority and is touched by deeper dimensions of reality which become visible to him. Perhaps this explains why children tend to be the ones to receive these apparitions. Their souls are as yet little disturbed. Their interior powers of perception are still not impaired. So, Matthew, you've got the former Cardinal Ratzinger and Pope Benedict XVI speculating along the same lines, and we'll have a link to the document, The Message of Fatima, so you can read all that in context.
0: All right. And then Matthew has a second question. He says, uh, in your in a most recent episode of Weird Questions with uh, Cy Kellett, you talked about when you'd have to fulfill your Sunday obligation when traveling at light speed. You mentioned that you fall under canon law relative to your own experience of time. What does this mean for canon law and time traveling? If you travel to a time before canon law exists, does that mean you're suddenly exempt or does it not matter because God and his precepts are outside of time?
1: Well, God is outside of time, and his eternal precepts are out, outside of time, so to speak. I mean, at least they apply to all of created reality in all times. But canon law is not outside of time. Canon law can come into existence, it can be modified, it can be abolished, and so consequently, if you traveled to a point in time before canon law existed, you would not be bound by canon law. At least... You would not be bound by what's called merely ecclesiastical law, which are laws that the church has determined even if they embody or give form to deeper principles. Now, the question of when we are to rest and worship is a matter of ecclesiastical law. So, you know, the church can determine things like, well, you can fulfill your Sunday obligation on Saturday evening or you know, because of a pandemic, you're relieved of your Sunday obligation or things like that. And so even if you traveled before the creation of canon law, you would still need to somehow fulfill the duty to adequately rest and worship, but you wouldn't be bound as to a particular time when you would do that. Other things, though, other elements of canon law are are not merely ecclesiastical. Some of them fall out of divine law, like you cannot be baptized more than once because baptism puts an indelible mark on your soul. So if you've been baptized and then you go back in time to before the Christian age, you should not get baptized again because that indelible mark on your soul is still there, even though your soul has moved in time.
0: Okay, excellent. Jay Mullenix asks, what's your take on the Shroud of Turin? I've been fascinated by it for years. It's got to be on the list for its own episode, right?
1: Oh, right. Yes, it is definitely on the list for a future episode. And I'm doing, you know, research on it. So this is one where I'm still forming my views. I, I, based on my current analysis of the evidence, there are things that look like they point in different directions. There was the carbon dating that was done in the 1980s that said this is medieval. On the other hand, there have been counter arguments claiming that that carbon dating was badly done, and there are other things that would point, like pollen, that would point to on the shroud that would point to a Middle Eastern origin and possibly much earlier. There are debates both ways about how the image on the shroud may have been made. I want to be really cautious in in regards to the Shroud of Turin because there are competent people who've looked at it and drawn opposite conclusions. I'm still in the process of researching and forming my own views. One of the temptations as an apologist that I really try to resist is the temptation to believe something and assert something just because I want it to be true. I would love it to turn out that the, the Shroud of Turin is and can scientifically be proven to be the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, or even just a burial cloth from the first century that has a miraculous image we can't explain on it, because that would point to it being the burial cloth of Jesus Christ and the miracle of the resurrection. I would love to have proof of that, you know, of this kind of scientific nature that you can go before a skeptic with. But what I'm not going to do is adopt that view just because I would like it to be true. And I'm not going to stretch the evidence to try to make it say that because, if, because that's bad apologetics. Number one, it's untruthful to stretch the evidence. And number two, you're asking to have your feet knocked out from under you by a competent skeptic, if you try to stretch the evidence and you encounter a skeptic that knows the evidence, he can expose you as someone who is stretching the evidence because of what you want to be true. You're not really following the evidence. So in my study of the shroud, whatever conclusion I end up coming to, I'm going to do my best to make sure I'm following the evidence and not following my desires. All right. John Gibot says, uh, hi, Jimmy and
0: Dom. Do you think that St. Brendan the Navigator actually made it to North America or is it
1: simply a pious legend? Keep up the fantastic work. So St. Brendan the Navigator was an Irish saint who lived in the 400s and 500s AD. And according to The accounts, he took this amazing voyage to some place in the Atlantic that's described as an island that was an unknown land at the time. And there are a number of questions about this. I'm not an expert in this, but I put it on the list of topics to research. And what I can tell you is that there are different viewpoints. Now, one is assuming he did make this voyage, and there's a question about that because it's often been taken as an allegory not as a real historical account, but as an allegorical account that illustrates something about the Christian faith in the spiritual life. So this is more a symbolic voyage rather than a literal voyage, according to some readings of the text. But uh, assuming it was a historical voyage, where did he go? Well, there's been a lot of speculation about that, some accounts put this island in the, in the north, some think it was maybe the Azores, something it might be the Canary Islands, something it, some it might be down near the equator, something it might be North America. So all of these are possibilities, but at this point, we don't have really good evidence. On the other hand, we do know that there was European contact with the Americas before Columbus, and it's not impossible for Brendan to have visited North America. It's just a question of, do we have good evidence for that? And so I would put this in a it's possible category, but don't have strong evidence at this point category.
0: Okay. Uh, Joseph Grabowski uh, asks, what is spirit exactly? We speak of the Godhead and of angelic creatures having a spiritual nature, and sometimes the soul is conceived of as spiritual, yet other times the soul is called the form of the body. And the principle of life for the body. And it clearly isn't the same stuff as God and angels. God doesn't even consist of stuff in that sense. So what is the relation between the spiritual part of our nature, of angelic natures, of divine nature beyond faculties, for example, intellectual, which are more things done than the thing that enables doing, which is what we'd usually mean by a nature?
1: So... This is a very difficult question to answer. Now, fundamentally, there's a divide between God and all created beings. As you say, God is not made out of any kind of stuff. That would imply that God has parts and God does not have parts. Even the three persons of the Trinity are not parts of God. A person is not a part. So that's really the fundamental divide. I would say that the spirits of angels and the spirits of men could be the same. I mean, they're, they're not identical, but they could be made of the same fundamental stuff, whatever that is. The problem is we really don't know because we haven't been able to do detailed studies of spirits. We have, because of our physical senses, been able to do detailed studies of Matter, the stuff our bodies are made of. And even that, it took a long time to figure out its nature. For much of recorded history, the idea was that matter is infinitely divisible. So you could just divide and divide and divide and divide. Let's say you had a piece of, you know, earth and Earth is an element. Suppose it's a primordial element. Well, you if you got a piece of Earth, you can just keep dividing it forever. It's never going to turn into something other than Earth if you divide it past a certain point. The rival theory, which was not popular throughout history, was that it's made of atoms, which are indivisible, individual, indivisible elements and how you, and then you would hook atoms together in different ways to make different substances. Well, turns out atomism looked like it was true starting in, you know, it was in the 1800s but it really wasn't confirmed until the 1900s when Albert Einstein had a proof that atoms exist in 1905, but even atomism turns out to sort of not be what we thought it was because An atom, the I mean, the name from Greek roots basically means can't be divided, but we can divide atoms. We smash atoms all the time. That's how we won World War II, or at least the war in the Pacific. So we can break down atoms into smaller things, and we don't know how far down that goes. Currently, we know about you know electrons and protons and neutrons, which and the protons and neutrons divide into quarks, but there's speculation about what, hap- what what's on the level below quarks. And could there be a level below that? And we don't know. There are some intriguing patterns in the standard model of, of subatomic physics that would suggest that, yeah, it looks like maybe there are things smaller than quarks. The tentative name for them is prions, but we don't have proof that prions exist. And in any event, atoms are, turns out to be more divisible than we first thought. And we've only learned all of this because we have physical senses that allow us to probe these kinds of things with technology that allows us to do very detailed measurements and look at very small structures and so forth. We don't have anything like that when it comes to spirits. Uh, The closest we can do to studying spirits directly would be, you know, parapsychology. But that's very indirect. We we can't put a spirit under a microscope the way we can an atom. You know, you can use an electron microscope to look at an atom. So we don't have near as much knowledge of how created spirits work. And consequently, the literature has mostly focused on what they can do, you know, think, communicate, have intentions, stuff like that, rather than how they work, because we just don't have the senses needed to be able to study them the way we can study matter.
0: Okay. Aaron Ferguson writes, given that God exists outside of time, I'm curious if there are any conclusions we may be able to draw with the deja vu or supposed clairvoyance phenomena.
1: Potentially, yeah, I think so. God is outside of time, so God sees all of history all at once and knows everything that's happening in it. Consequently, he can reach in to any moment in history and either give someone a feeling of deja vu based on maybe a subconscious communication of information about an event that happened that they didn't personally experience, or he could make it more conscious and give them a retrocognitive experience, like a vision of the past, or he could give them a precognitive experience, like a vision of the future. So God could explain things like déjà vu, or I should say we could explain things like déjà vu in terms of God giving people either subtle nudges or overt communication about the past or the future, déjà vu, and, you know, precognitive and retrocognitive phenomena. We could explain it that way. There's a question, though, of whether... There's more to it than that, because you could also explain deja vu in terms of other things, you know, some of which we've talked about, like cryptoamnesia, where you did experience a situation that's like the one that's given you the deja vu feeling. You've just forgotten when and where it was. Or maybe it happened in a dream and you've forgotten when, it were, when and where it was in the dream, but it's like, oh, this seems kind of familiar. Similarly, you know, if remote viewing is real as a, or precognition is real as a natural human ability, which St. Thomas Aquinas incidentally thought it was. Uh, We mentioned in our episodes 105 and 106 on St. Thomas Aquinas and the Occult, how he thought that humans do have a limited natural precognitive ability that sometimes manifests, for example, in dreams. He called it natural prophecy, as opposed to supernatural prophecy that comes from God. And so it could also be that the things like déjà vu and precognition and retrocognition have a basis in human nature and don't depend on God for their operation, but it is possible certainly since God knows all of time that he could be playing a role in this too.
0: All right. So I think that's about all the time we have for questions this time, but we have more we don't don't worry if you submitted a question that didn't get answered. We still have it. We're going to save it for our next time that we do patron questions. So uh, thank you to all the patrons and especially those who submitted questions. So, Jimmy, what do we have for further resources for those who want to find out more about the things we talked about today?
1: Well, we'll have in the show notes all of the different links that we talked about. There were quite a lot of them, so I won't uh, review them all, but be sure and check out the show notes for more information about the different things we talked about. Excellent.
0: Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com, A-A-R-O-N-V.com, making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida and by RosaryArmy.com. Have more peace. Visit RosaryArmy.com and get a free all-twine knotted rosary, downloadable audio rosaries, and more make them, pray them, give them away at rosaryarmy.com. And by Whole Mission Marquette Method Natural Family Planning Services. Unveil the mystery of you and your spouse's combined fertility using an evidence-based, highly effective, and moral way of avoiding or achieving pregnancy. Discover more from a licensed healthcare professional at mmnfp.com. So that's it from us. Thank you again to all our patrons and especially those who submitted questions. You can submit your feedback on today's episode by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting sqpn.com or the jimmy akins mysterious world facebook page and leaving some feedback you can send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world and like i said you'll find these links to jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com slash starquest and eventually at sqpn.com slash mysterious when we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. We hope you've enjoyed this Patrons Questions show. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is only possible because of the generosity of our patrons on Patreon. If you'd like to support Jimmy Yakin's Mysterious World and have your questions answered on future shows for patrons, go to sqpn.com slash give.